Hey guys, welcome to TV with friends. In just a moment, we will get into the episode, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of an overview about what we're getting into. So this is going to be season one of Perry Mason. If you haven't seen all of season one, uh, there are a couple spoilers in this season, so heads up for that. And you know, this came out in early summer on HBO, and Evan and I weren't quite expecting to love it as much as we did, but it was a great series, and it was the return to the multi-season format of a show, which we haven't really started doing in a while. All of the shows that we've covered in the past year, at least, have been miniseries or limited series. So we're going to be getting into that, um, and at the end, if you guys want to stay tuned, we're also going to be doing a spoiler-free teeny tiny recap of All Be Gone in the Dark, which is an amazing docu-series that uh, aired right after Perry Mason this summer, so stay tuned for that. And we hope you guys enjoy this episode. This is Perry Mason, Season 1. Enjoy! Evan, hi. What's up, Chelsea? How's your summer? It's really hot now. <laughs> it's so hot. It's good to be podcasting again because we have had to put this off a little bit for this little heat wave that moved through Oregon, and you guys have really, really got it bad down there. So. Oh, yes. It's been oh, rough. Oh, yes. It has been a hot, hot summer. But one of the cool things, along with our X-Files and some other shows we've been watching in the summer, was we got the first season of Perry Mason. And really not sure a, a lot about the show when we first started. Never seen the original. Didn't quite know what it was based off of. But fuck, it did not take me long to get really, really into it. And we really, really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And it was a pleasant surprise, you know, you, uh, with Matthew Reese at the helm, we got something really awesome out of it. And we it did. Was such a pleasant, pleasant surprise. Yes. Well, we've picked out some things that we want to talk about. So also there will be, uh, spoilers. So make sure that you've seen every episode before you're listening to this. And we'll kind of start at the top. Um, I wanted to talk about Los Angeles in the 1930s because you and I are both born and raised in Los Angeles. And I do, you know, we're so used to things being filmed in LA and being able to pick it out at any point. Um, but this was like an LA that obviously we couldn't imagine because it just resemble, it does not resemble the LA that we have now. And, you know, through CGI and actual, you know, using some of sets and some of the more historical locations like cemeteries and uh, downtown and the courthouses, I was just really like in awe <laughs> of how different it was. So we thought we'd go back and uh, kind of talk about what was going on in the 1930s and things that kind of pertain to the show. So, Evan, tell me what you have, what we're going to talk about, some of the things that you Googled that really stood out to you. We have uh, kind of a brief history lesson. This is more in terms of kind of the way that the courts worked uh, at the time of this, uh, that Perry Mason takes place in. Mm -hmm. um, kind of wanted to acknowledge what you said about the way that you don't recognize L.A., but there are certain aspects of the show and places that it's filmed that are very recognizable. It's very Pasadena. You mm -hmm. see the Pasadena courthouse. You see a lot of like the old crafts 
even houses wow. that are in Pasadena. Absolutely. And they are absolutely beautiful. And it is a true callback to the 30s. And they still exist to this day. Mm -hmm. They so, are still there, yeah. Uh, there's a little history lesson on L.A., but I'm going to give you a little, 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 as I completely mince my words. We got it. A little history lesson on the courtrooms in Los Angeles in the 1930s. Awesome. And I was kind of intrigued because as we were watching the episodes, especially the episodes during the trial, mm -hmm. I was kind of wondering why there were only two women in the jury. And yes. I was like, okay, so when was it exactly that women were allowed to be a part of the jury? And women were actually allowed to be part of the jury starting in 1898. Mm. But they were also allowed to apply for exemption and during that time it made a lot of sense there weren't many women in the jury because they had quote unquote i'm doing air quotes as i say that mm -hmm. um household duties and yeah. they were expected to take care of the household take care of the kids um hold down whatever job that they could possibly hold down and the jobs were actually would actually threaten them if they were to go and perform this jury service mm. to let them go, which is absolutely terrible. But, um, you know, starting in the 30s, they were fully allowed to perform jury service. And it actually started earlier in 1920 when women's suffrage actually went into, that became the 19th Amendment. Mm -hmm. The push for jury rights in the remaining states kind of increased but it didn't take full effect until the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which gave women the right, the full right to serve on federal juries in particular. But it wasn't until 1973 that all 50 states actually passed a similar, similar legislation to allow them to all do so. Okay, so another little bit of historic information. I was kind of wondering where the media was stopped was stopped being allowed to be in a courtroom and when they were brought back and the immediate coverage actually the federal rule of criminal procedure 53 since criminal rules were adapted in 1946 they were barred from the courtroom mm. not until probably i think it was in the 1970s that they actually offered for the courts, it was their choice to say whether the media could be allowed or not allowed. Mm. And one of the one of our most famous things that we have to reference in terms of media in the courtroom uh, is the OJ trial. Yes, that was the first time that it was widely publicized. Mm. Like it was videotaped every day, audio recorded. So I was just kind of like wondering when that dropped off when that became another a new regular so you know that's a little bit of uh history on the judicial yeah system it is very interesting in yeah it is very interesting about how we're watching this show just going like how could you get any work done in this courtroom like how would anybody be able to perceive facts how would jurors you know a lawyer can say one thing and then the other lawyer can say strike that from the record you know, because there's something they don't want them to be hearing. They kind of want to like refresh their brains and everything. But at the same time, you're a juror, your brain is a sponge. And imagine ev 
you have to take into account everything that they're shouting. And a lot of people might be showing up to see justice for someone. So they could be very upset and, you know, they're just yelling things at the person being prosecuted and the jury could just be swayed either way. So it definitely makes sense that they like lost their privileges and <laughs> then had to get them back. Well, it was a total like showcase. It was, it was almost like a TV show for us. Mm-hmm. People could just go to the courthouse and sit in the, in the courtroom mm-hmm. and just watch what was going on yeah. and kind of interject themselves no matter if their opinion mattered or not. It was mm-hmm. just like, Oh, you killed your baby. Uh, yeah. Uh, liar! Uh, liar! And you're just like, shut up! Yeah. Like, that's not even, that's not even helping <laughs> at that yeah, point. It doesn't, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. But it did, it does make for a very exciting, like, tense courtroom. So it works for TV. I'm glad it works differently in real life. Yes. All right. God. Well, like, you have, uh, some historical references for kind of certain characters that were in the show? I do. I was wondering who, if anybody, they really kind of wanted to touch on and see if we could kind of find the people that they were based off of. Uh, Sister Alice is definitely very, very closely based off of someone. So I'm going to go tell you guys a little bit about her first, and then we'll just get into some quick ones of different characters and who they were thinking of when they were writing these characters. So Sister Alice appears to be based on Amy Semple McPherson. She was an evangelist and the founder of the Four Square Church in in Los Angeles. Known as Sister Amy, or Sister, just like in the show, uh, she was a Canadian Pentecostal evangelist and media celebrity in the 1920s and 30s. That was kind of like when she was the most popular. And, and uh, Sister Alice from the show, uh, they were also traveling. They were, from yeah, Canada. they were traveling from Canada. So it's really, really, really close for her. For others, it's a little hit or miss. Um, and in her time, she was the most publicized Protestant evangelist, surpassing Billy Sunday and other predecessors. She conducted public faith healing demonstrations over, you know, to tens of thousands of participants. This was a big deal. McPherson's view of the United States as a nation founded and sustained by divine inspiration influenced her later pastors. Uh, National news coverage focused on events surrounding her family and church members, including accusations she fabricated her reported kidnapping. (laughs) So there we go. We've got got another thing that directly ties into the show. Uh, McPherson's preaching style, extensive charity work, and economical um, contributions were a major influence in the 20th century charismatic Christianity. So she was out there. And, you know, some things that I thought was just kind of some interesting stuff about her life, you know, would have, we got a little bit into sister Alice and, you know, what her life was like when she wasn't on stage and maybe where, you know, her talents kind of came from. But I thought it was interesting in her her life. She was married twice. Her first husband uh, died of dysentery and Amy contracted malaria while visiting China. And he died while she was pregnant with their first child. She delivered uh, shortly after he died. Uh, She wouldn't go on to preach until 1930 after remarrying actor and musician David Hutton. She also had a failed appendicitis operation that she believes she survived because she heard a voice telling her that she was healed. And if she got up, she would be able to move like her surgery. She was just stuck in bed 
and um, couldn't move and was, you know, her at that point, your life is in danger if you have a failed surgery in the 1920s or 30s. Um, so she believes that she prayed and she heard a voice and the voice said, you're healed, get up, get up and get better and get up and heal, and heal yourself. And it was like the first time she had been able to move her body in a really long time. So that's kind of how, yeah, that's kind of how she was influenced. And again, she preached to some of the most crowd, uh, crowds of people at than anyone at that time. So she's a big deal. And then little quick ones before we move on to our second topic. Um, Perry's girlfriend, Lupe, who's my favorite character, uh, looks to be, and I'm going to say this loosely because uh, Lupe is Latinx and this person, Florence Poncho Barnes, is American. Um, and basically, she's a just a legendary pilot. And after when Lupe in the pilot um, of the show, after she's landing her plane, she passes by a sign that says bottoms up. And it's that's kind of a um, a callback to Florence Poncho Barnes because that was kind of her thing was you know there were signs like that at her airport and she was kind of like I'm a female pilot and like woo so it was great um, the character Hazel Prystock who is Della's girlfriend I loved her she's not in it much but she was great. Um, her nickname is Myrna, and as she sometimes doubles for actress Myrna Loy, who was a very successful actress um, around their time and definitely uh, rising to fame at the time around the show. Chubby Carmichael is modeled on Ro Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. I believe Fatty Arbuckle was also a character in Boardwalk Empire, but he's just a very classic face. Um, and his acting career was actually wrecked by a false murder charge. So not those controversial sex pictures with all the pie. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I mean, if you could, I'm just going to like take a quick, let's just, let's acknowledge that sex scene. That was hilarious. That was great. And if you were a woman who was basically like, I don't know if she was being paid to have sex with him or whatever, but if you were a woman, that's a pretty good <laughs> way to do. She didn't really have to do much. It was more about the pie. <laughs> the scariest thing was, in re-watching that episode, I was just like, okay, there's this giant Batman chasing them down the street mm -hmm. as, they, as Perry and Pete drive away. As he throws the shoe at him, the guy had was very well endowed. Huge! For, <laughs> for a, a large individual. A lot, yeah, yeah. He could see his dick. <laughs> very small uh, preferences. Mm -hmm. But this, this gentleman... I give him a thumbs up on that. Good one. for you, sir. <laughs> great, <laughs> great work. That's where great the work. Came from. Yes, but he is Fatty Arbuckle, and again, murder charge. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. I might Google that later. And then quickly, the studio head Walter LeBaron is uh, based on William LeBaron, who was the head of production at Paramount in the early 1930s. Those guys are all corrupt, so <laughs> I'm glad they didn't yeah, stay too long with him. It was also corrupt back then. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on. Let's talk about, this is a big thing for us because I feel like a lot of the series that we've covered on uh, this podcast, besides Game of Thrones, most of them have been limited series. So let's talk about returning to a multi-season format. Um, there have been some, there were some great reviews for the show and the show was very well received. Um, but there were a few TV critics who I follow um, who had a kind of a different idea and 
about season one. And basically what they were talking about was that the entire, the entirety of season one was used as a premise pilot. And a premise pilot is just your pilot. It's, hi, welcome to the show. You've been dropped into our world. This is me. This is the other characters. This is where we live and something big is going to happen or, you know, or this is our daily life. When you're watching the pilot, you're not as so much as watching as you are learning about these characters and what the show is going to be about. So I think their review of it was a little negative in the sense that they thought that they spent the entire first season um, using setups and using that instead of just kind of fully going for it, I suppose. But Evan, I want to know your opinion and you and I share a certain opinion on this that we're just in a different kind of time for what we're viewing right now. So what are your thoughts on that? We're getting new stuff all the time. And I happen to look up the idea of a premise pilot. And the idea of a premise pilot is technically just your first episode. Mm -hmm. And usually it's just referred to as a pilot. One of the main uh, examples that was used in the stuff that I read about the premise pilot Mm -hmm. was the first episode of Lost. The plane crashes. They're on an island. There's a monster. What do we do? Mm -hmm. That's the pilot. Mm Mm-hmm. But the idea of your first season, no matter what, you're introducing your characters to the audience. You're not trying to explain your characters. You're not trying to build them all that much. Yes. You're very focused on the idea of the characters. You want to get the audience to connect with those characters. And in my opinion, this first season, they're not overly exploring Lupe. They're not overly exploring Emily. They're not overly exploring certain characters. They're exploring Perry Mason. They're exploring Della. They're exploring EB. Yes. They're exploring the specific characters that have to do with this season. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, from what I remember from learning how to write, that's the idea of your first season. It's an introduction to the characters. It's not an overly expansive delve into their family life, delve into all like too much of their psyche. Yeah, we got some great stuff with Perry. We got some great stuff with Evie. We got some even better stuff with Della. And then we had to deal with what I'm hoping are secondary characters, such as Mother and Sister Alice, and you know the rest of the church. Mm-hmm. we'll cover that later. Yeah, we'll talk about that. It's all, it's all, they covered the most important characters. Yes. In my opinion. And I wonder if not, you know, I'm just, this is just coming to me now. I know we probably should have talked about this before. Um, but as you were saying this, uh, I think one of the factors too that we're, uh, we could also put into this is a lot of people don't, when we're binging stuff and you're getting, you know, you get somebody into a show and they're like, cool, I did it. And I'm, I'm already on season two, you know, and you're like, cool, that was so fast. Now get through it and catch up and we can talk about it. That is also, people aren't used to seeing a first season of a show week and week and week and week and week and like, like spread out. Usually, especially when you're going into binge something, you're looking at the first season, like, all right, let's fucking do this. Let's get this over with, you know, because maybe the, you know, maybe the good stuff doesn't often lie 
in the first season, the first season, you're like, you're right. It's about building characters. It's about building the plot, pointing them in a direction that they're going to follow for future seasons. So I, I agree. I think, I think it's, you know, now that we're in kind of a time where there's, you know, all these streaming services have gone up in the last year and we're seeing a lot of changes as to how we view things. And for the better part of 2020, we were, and late and the later part of 20, uh, 2019, we were getting only limited series. Yeah. So I think you just kind of have to realign what you're watching and say, you know what, I have to be more patient. I got to settle in for this. It, it was weird watching this pilot. I was like, why do I feel weird watching this? And then I'm like, oh, because I need to be patient. I need to not be expecting so much because Perry's not going to die in episode eight. He's going to yeah. live on for fucking five seasons. So well, I think you, a lot of it is just you, the, the time that we're in. When you hit on the limited series and our most current limited series is uh, The Outsider, right? That was our last one, yeah. That was our last one. And, the first, and they aired the first two episodes back to back. So... They treated us very well and yes. then gave us the week to week. Mm -hmm. So when you get that hook, the hook is there right away. And I'm wondering if that's where Steppenwall's review kind of comes from is the idea of the binge watch. Like yeah. you said, like we're treated to a single season released on one day where we can watch it within 24 hours, mm -hmm. if not 30 to 40, 48 hours. Yeah. And we can call it a day, but then we have to wait a year. Mm -hmm. So we're or maybe you're yeah, watching a show like Grey's Anatomy or Shameless. There's eleven yeah. seasons, so it's like fucking go fast, you know, and like yeah. breeze through it. Yeah, it's it is. You're right. It is. It's very different based on what we're doing, and I think you have to take when we're talking about series that are going to air on a network week after week then we need to talk about them differently than we do with other shows that like on Netflix, like I watched Ozark season three and I want to say 29 hours, <laughs> I probably got through it. And, and then again, you know, it was, it was very great. It washes over you. It's an exciting ride and then it's gone. So it's a lot of just finding your preference and stuff. And I think that, you know, if anybody's listening who didn't really agree with, didn't necessarily get as deep into Perry Mason as we are, or going to listen to this and then get into Perry Mason spoilers and all, which I do a lot. I will listen to things be spoiled and then I will go watch them. But, you know, I think it's just kind of realign yourself as new, you know, programming is coming out. What streaming service are you watching it on? Oh, well, it's not all in one day, it's week to week. So I think this is a great show for people to just, you know, re recalibrate yourself a little bit and you know not everything gets shoveled at you all at once and, well, and sometimes it's and worth the wait our conversation on this could have been very different because perry mason was supposed to be a limited series yes it was not ordered as a limit or as a as a full series it was only halfway through the first season that hbo actually said hey we have something here let's do more than just the limited series let's get back to this format mm -hmm. and they had an outlet because of hbo max coming out so exactly. h yeah so hbo max we needed to hurry and fill up that library with content yep. other than what people got from hbo now which is all it's all the fucking same thing <laughs> anyway and i mean we have to love hbo because hbo and netflix are the only two studios that are 
currently fully active and fully filming and going into production um, due to the COVID-19 stuff. Mm. Um, and it sucks because I we still don't know how long we're going to have to wait. So it's almost like, did, do you want to get involved with these series? Do you not, like, are you mm-hmm. going to hold back until you find out that, okay, season two premieres 2021, August 2021. Okay, so now we can start watching it. It's it's just a strange, like, it's Mm -hmm. a weird, an even stranger position for all of us to be in right now. Yeah. With connecting with a a, a multi-season format. Yeah. And it's changing, too. We were talking about how movies are changing because movie theaters are, well, as of now, we're coming to the end of August, are now starting to reopen. But since March, you know, a lot of movies have gone straight to streaming and on demand. And, you know, we could be looking at an entire, like if you people are out there feeling weird about the way that they're watching things or consuming things, thinking I'm not doing this in the appropriate place or in the right way. You know, I think a lot of, because of COVID, a lot of things are going to change. And I was already a type of person where a movie had to be real fucking good for you, for me to like pay the money, get in the theater, sit around other people and share this with everybody. You know, it had to be a big, really entertaining film for me to go to because I can watch, you know, I have a great, a nice setup in my living room. I don't have surround sound or anything, but I can watch a movie on my own time and be perfectly satisfied and not go, Oh, it should have been in a theater. Kind of wish I saw that on a bigger screen. You know, I think we're, we're all just going to, you know, like technology wants us to, we're all going to just like find our own little hive of how we like yeah. to consume content and it'll be individualistic over, well, you know, those, tradition. Those, like necessarily like those movies that you need to see in the movie theater are so far and few between as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what else can draw you in? Like what the last movie that I saw was 1917, which we all know is a huge favorite movie of mine. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the last movie that I saw prior to that. I think it was maybe Star Wars. Yeah, I've seen all the Star Wars in the theaters. And then I think even before Star Wars, it was like Midsummer or just something where it was like a group of friends are like, let's go see this. It's so scary. You know, like I, I really think that, yeah, you and I can really appreciate content, but then also know, you know, okay, got to get myself, I got to get my butt in a theater (laughs) for this one. (laughs) And it'll be the, yeah, and it'll be the same thing with how we're, you know, viewing TV and stuff. So it's just as shows like this are coming out, I'm sure we'll have more conversations about how people are viewing them and relating to that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a little break and then we'll be right back. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's go through our favorite scenes and then we can also get into favorite characters as well. I'll go first. Um, So one of my most favorite scenes, and then I think this is like the most important. And then I kind of go down from there. Um, One of my favorite scenes is with officer Drake and Peter, uh, Peter and Perry. (laughs) Sorry, Pete. I just saw Pete and then I called him Peter. Okay. Because Pete is also a character. All right, so Drake and Perry, um, after they ha- after he interviews him in court, and it doesn't really go that well because Drake is being uh, bribed by one of the bad guys. So he goes back and he kind of feels bad that he couldn't really 
tell the truth and be honest and then goes back to Perry and he's kind of explaining, you know, his position in this world as a black man. And I love his little speech that he does and he said and he's just kind of going through it and he says a black man, even a goddamn black police uh, policeman cannot stand up to a white man. And this kind of we kind of touched on this in Watchmen. One of the reasons um that uh her grandfather became uh what was his name the guy with the noose around his neck fuck i can't remember um but he became that character to fight for justice and became a vigilante is uh because of the fact that he could not do it as a black policeman back then and i think that was even in like that was way further than the 30s um so i just thought it was it was really kind of good to touch on that and i'm glad that there's a lot more inclusivity in the dynamics of characters and their morals in these ones, because just because he's black does not mean he has to be a pimp or a gangster or anything. He's actually a fucking policeman trying to do the right thing and just really sick of his role in the world as a, you know, as a black man at that point, which, you know, I've got all the time in, in the day for, for representation on television. So I was really glad that we stuck to that. And I'm really glad that he, of his position of where he's going off to in the next season. All right. It's very timely for us right now, too. Mm -hmm. We're in a very, you know, strange time when it yeah. comes to uh, everybody kind of appreciating one another for who they are. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's just a, a strange, it's a strange correlation that, you know, we can be watching something in the 30s and we're in 19, uh, 2020 mm -hmm. and we're going through kind of the same and it's Exactly. And it still rings true. And it's still the exact, you know, thing. And I don't think that... Perry Mason or Lovecraft Country were necessarily set to premiere. No, you know, nobody could have predicted what we're going through and what would happen, but um, very appropriate right now. And I'm sure much more appreciated than it might've been if it had come out, you know, a, 10 years ago or even a three years ago. So I was really happy to see that. Okay. What's one of yours? So uh, one of mine was kind of like the introduction to Perry himself mm -hmm. uh, with kind of him and Pete sitting in the diner uh, Perry complaining that 44 cents was too much for a cup of coffee and, <laughs> some, and a, a pancake or some shit. I don't remember exactly what it was, but that was when they were following the character that we're now referring to as Matty Arbuckle. Mm -hmm. um, I just really liked the idea of seeing Perry in the gritty side of what he was doing, his initial like I'm a I'm a I'm a, a private eye. I do what I need to do, mm -hmm. but I actually really like the idea of him needing to do what he needed to do in that instance. Yeah, because it was the right thing to do. And sneaking in to the person's house and taking pictures of them while they were having weird sex games mm -hmm. was one thing. But it kind of shows you that that was not his favorite style of detective. Yeah. He is more he is more focused on things that are important and things that will help people. And that's what I love as we get down the line when he gets into the case with Emily Dodson and Charlie Dodson and it's just like he feels like he has to do it. Yeah. He's so affected by it. And you see kind of like the the growth of him as a private detective. Mm -hmm. I love that introduction. 
I th- I think that is a great I like I like in the first episode where after he's uh putting up the pictures and then EB comes in and EB is even kind of looking at him going why are you doing this like and look at your house like what are you doing you're in your parents house and yeah. you know it's just like where are you right now and we get to we get to see like what Robert Downey Jr. and Matthew Reese originally intended for this is that this is an origin story, not just a reimagining. And, you know, it's, it's just very cool to see his character. You know, we're, we get to see what he likes and what, what really gets him going and what is just part of his day to day. That's fallout from his, his divorce, the war, all of that stuff. So I, I agree when he's, pulling himself up by the bootstraps it's just it's really interesting to watch this character just go right before your eyes and start to unfold all right um right up along with that um i think one of the main one of the scenes that i think kind of displays him just going oh fuck i'm in over my head is the thread room and um you know he was the one who asked from the thread that they sewed on on Charlie's eyes to make him look like he was still alive. And it's just so morbid and so dark and so terrifying to think that there was somebody out there that did this to that baby. And then he goes, well, let me take this little piece of thread, you know, like pulling at threads. And he's like, this is just this little lead that I have thinking I can get in and get out of this case. And this is just a job and it won't affect me at all. And then he steps into the thread room and it's just like, you know, as far as the eye can see, tens of thousands of different uh, types of thread. And it's just great symbolism of, okay, if I really want to do something, it's going to be hard work. I'm going to have to look everywhere and I'm going to have to extend myself further than I have at any other point to do what's right and change things in my life. So I thought, I think the thread room is just, just the CGI in this, in this whole series is I mean, I don't know how different how other people re- react to CGI, but for me, this is one where I'm just like, yeah, that's that's good, <laughs> you know, like real enough and and visually gets me there and does not take me out. Sometimes CGI takes me out a little bit, but this is just it's just a be- really really beautiful shot, kind of like in Game of Thrones when they <laughs> it immediately took me back to where they go down and they look at how much of the uh, the expl- that gr- that green explosive that they had. And it's just yeah. like it's yeah, it just goes down for rows and rows and rows. So it's it's a very ominous, overpowering shot. All right, your turn. Sorry, go ahead. It's definitely, it's definitely overarching like throughout the season because you're like, how dark can this get? Because mm-hmm. they're starting off real dark. Oh yeah. With him throwing that little piece of thread into the matchbox, mm-hmm. and I was always, you know, as we were watching the whole season, I was wondering when that would come back up again. It doesn't come back up Mm -hmm. until the season finale when he opens the box. And I'm just like, okay, so I was expecting it to be like a piece of evidence or something, but it's so dark that he had to have that pulled out of a child's eyeball, eyeball, eyelid. Um, It was just... And he's carrying it around with him. Yeah. He's grasping at threads. He's carrying the weight of it. It's all just like really good symbolism that doesn't seem too like, um, it's not too on the nose, even though, you know, we're kind of like calling it out right now, but it's, it's just really, really well done for symbolism. I think. Well, your previous statement, him grasping at threads. Yeah. It's very fitting. Yeah. All right. Your turn. What's next? Oh, so it's my turn. So the resurrection of 
little Charlie Dodson. Yeah. I love that scene, and I love it. You know, it's such a huge hoopla through the latter part of the season, and we get some really great stuff with Perry and Della and them kind of, like, fighting through this crowd to help Emily, even though we're still on the fence with mm-hmm. Emily throughout this whole part because we don't know like she's fully invested in Sister Alice's idea of resurrecting her son and they are just like fighting. It's more about Perry fighting through the crowd because he's the one that's pushing yes. pushing and pushing and pushing and trying to get to her and he gets to her right at the grave site, right as the coffin comes up and then they open the coffin and the body's gone. Yeah. And Not expecting that. They're all shocked. Mm-hmm. They're all shocked. So then you get Della rushing in with the car mm-hmm. and just like, everybody get in the car, rushing the three of them out of there. Yeah. But the pandemonium of... interaction with Mother and Sister Alice. Yeah. And that was my favorite part was you kind of find the fallibility in Sister Alice because she believed herself mm-hmm. so much that she could re- resurrect this child. There was no child to resurrect, but then as they're driving down the street, her mother finds <laughs> a baby randomly on the side of the street. Oh, okay, cool. And she still doesn't believe in herself enough, and she runs away. Yeah. Oh, it's good. I liked, I liked so that, good. and I... Yeah, as... They, they do a really good job leading up to Easter and the resurrection, and everybody is waiting for Sister Alice to be shown as a fraud. And just the, the, the pandemonium of the crowd and that chaotic scene of just like religious zealots and then disappointment and then just, oh, like I would not want to be stuck in that crowd. I really thought that there was going to, there might be a second where somebody was going to grab Emily. Um, but just, oh, just like the uproar of the people and just fighting to get out and everything. And they're in their like little car and stuff. And it's just like, okay, yeah. you're not even, you're not even good if you're in the car. That car cannot run over people. That's a car and from the joint. like, speed up, speed up. Yeah, it's like, how? <laughs> 20 miles an hour. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't get very far very fast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really, I loved that, that I thought what I thought we were going into was we we're going to see a uh, corpse of, of Charlie again. <laughs> like how many times have we seen it? And we were going to yeah. see that again and then see that he's like decomposed into like a baby skeleton or something. But I, it, again, yeah, that scene was, was really, really good. Uh, forever, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. I was also, yeah, I was also thinking about all the extras there and like how much they film there. And I was like, almost telling the extras, I was like, get off those graves. Don't step on those graves. (laughs) That's not your grave. Get off, get off those graves. There are people trying to rest under there. It's disrespectful. There's, there's etiquette in cemeteries. I'll tell you I'm a witch. All right. So I'm going to go back and do one of mine. This is just kind of, this is more into um, characters, but fucking any scene with Perry and Lupe. I love Lupe. I think it is so fucking refreshing that we are going to get, he's not necessarily an anti-hero, but he is definitely a flawed hero. You know, he's someone who's trying to do the right thing, but 
there is a lot to him. And those men typically get written with girlfriends or fiancés or wives, whatever, who just are there to pacify them to, you know, just kind of be like, how can I help? How can I support? You know, like, what decision are you making? This is crazy. And then storms off. It's very reactionary. And it never, those characters never really builds to anything. I mean, unless you're like Skylar White or Carmela Soprano or something. But it was just so great to see a female character to bounce off of him to say, get your shit together. Get out of your own fucking head. Stop living in the past. Stop moping and fucking go forward. And then I think she's also a really integral character to Perry because those people who, you know, push you forward out of your comfort zone in that moment, you're like, why is this person doing this to me? You know, like what I thought this person really cared about me. Now they're giving me an ultimatum or now they're, you know, distancing themselves from me. But it's so important that you have to move away from people in order for them to move forward themselves. And you could look at Lupe and be like, damn, what a cold bitch for, you know, buying his house. Like, like she warned him that she would, you know, and then go ahead. You get it from Lupe in the first scene that you're introduced to her. Yeah. Like, you briefly see her real quick when she lands her plane at the very beginning. But mm-hmm. the, 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 the sex scene that they have. I love the their sex scene so episode, much. She fucking tucks him into the corner. She fucks him into the corner of the bed, bed. yeah. And she's just like, oh, that was good, puppy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, wait, she she's done. On. Yeah, she orgasms. Exactly. That's a solid offer. That's yeah. A solid offer. No, she and, and she's like, okay, I'm bye. I'm sleeping in my own bed. Well, exactly. Let's unpack that because we usually see men having sex until they orgasm, getting up, the woman's left there in the bed, just going like, okay, I guess that was sex. And then the guy gets up and then says something to the woman and then leaves. You know, it goes, this is, I gotta go. I got what I came for. We had sex. I'm going to go. And she's the one who's going, will you stay? Like stay the night. So this complete role reversal is just so fucking refreshing to see. It's the same thing. I love to see when you see a man naked and the woman is clothed at like different times. I fucking love it. It's just like the fucking feminist in me is really fucking proud of her. And yeah, any scene with Perry and Lupe are definitely up there and besides Perry Lupe is my number one favorite character <laughs> so yeah just all yeah. of her that is goes absolutely amazing yeah especially like when you get that initial introduction to a character how can you not love them exactly they they drink she drinks tequila she tells you the truth and no. you know there's no bullshit <laughs> puppy it's not tequila it's mezcal it's mezcal, it's mezcal. yeah and she calls him, yeah, and she calls him Poppy, and he's never in control of their relationship. Of She comes and goes as she pleases. It's just, yep. mwah, chef's kiss. All right, your turn. All right, so my next one is the interaction between Perry and Della when they yeah. are at Perry's. This is kind of later on in this the This is season. one of mine, too. They're having a little, like, bonfire in, in, at Perry's house while they're going over the case. And they kind of enter into a conversation about Della's relationship. And um, can you quickly remind me of her girlfriend's name? Uh, it's, uh, hold on one second. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I totally um, 
Hazel, Wait, sorry. Name. I kept wanting to call her Myrna because that's the actress. Yeah, yeah. No, Hazel. And he, he confronts her about it and he doesn't confront her about it in like a negative way or mm. a very like rough way. He kind, of, he kind of just lays it out on the table. Well, no, she says she, you didn't have to throw it in my face like that. And so, okay, so then I'm taking it differently. I, I didn't feel like it was aggressive on his part, but she does. And, but I can understand well, you're right. He's venting. He doesn't know what that. he's saying. He's just like spewing so, vitriol. Like you're right. He didn't mean it. Yeah, and he later apologizes for it. That's true. But I didn't find like his his tact to be out of the norm. Yeah. Um, it, and I can only imagine what it was like in the early '30s for someone to enter into a conversation about an LGBTQ relationship. But I love the fact that Della being, and I'll cover this now since we're hitting sure. Della. She's yeah. one of my one of my favorite characters. Oh, because she is an incredibly strong woman mm -hmm. in a world where men are supposed to be stronger, but she kind of outweighs a lot of the male characters. She equalizes them completely. She can. She would. If she, if I put her in the in a ring with Perry Mason, she'd probably kick his ass. Mm -hmm. To be honest, yeah. So her strength and the fact that she outweighs those male characters, and she can take that conversation, and she can tell Perry like, "That's not cool. This is how it is. This mm -hmm. is who I am. Respect me or don't. Yeah. But guess what? It is what it is." It was one of my favorite scenes throughout the entire series, for sure. I loved Della. it. No, I agree. I was, yeah, I was wait, I was waiting for you to point that out because I was going to also put it on my on my list. And you know, uh, I don't often like to see actors kind of reprise a role. So, like, you know, a, a lot of actors might choose kind of the same role and everything. And sometimes that can kind of bug me. But her role was very similar when she was on the Nick. Um, she was the head of a, of a hospital dealing with all of these like male doctors in like 1904 or something like that. And, um, and just like, even back then, like that's, you know, like 27 years before Perry Mason, women are being taken even less seriously, but she was able to hold her own. And I think that she is just as an actress with her look and then the way that she executes her performance, she is, you do take her seriously. You know, she's very feminine, but she's not too pretty or to be lusted after. She's strong, but she's not a bitch or she intimidating. You know, she has a lot of heart. And, she, and when she does get upset, she's speaking out of passion for truth or for justice. Yeah. You know, so I, I completely agree. I, I love her a lot. She's such a, and she, the actress did such a great job mm -hmm. at just kind of like conveying all, everything you would think that someone would need to be need to convey in the middle of that type of conversation. Yeah. It was perfect. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So, uh, what's your next one? I'm going to do just a little quick one because we did kind of talk about this and then I'll go into my last one. Um, I really loved, like, again, we're saying this is set in Los Angeles and that is where we are from and it is familiar and unfamiliar all at the same time. But it's not often, I've lived in Portland for almost six years now and 
I'm never coming back to California. I will be in the Pacific Northwest if you need me. Um, but don't blame you. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it was chilly last night. Um, no, <laughs> so, but I, one of the things that I don't often get homesick for LA besides I miss you terribly and I miss my family and my friends, but, um, one of the things that can really get me in that vibe, uh, was just like we were saying, those shots of Highland Park, Pasadena. Um, I grew up very close to Pasadena. My mom went to work there. I had my first job there. My sister went to college, uh, for her first few years there. So all of that, those Pasadena homes, the craftsman style homes, those beautiful streets that just lined with palm trees. Um, just that, that kind of, I mean, I, I suppose every place has it, but California during, um, during the golden hour, you know, like the, yeah. and the twilight hour, you just, it, it is so fucking beautiful and it made me homesick and made me miss it. And I haven't felt that way probably since I saw once upon a time in Hollywood where I was like, Oh, I miss living in Hollywood. I miss that. But I, it's just so beautiful. And I, and like, you're right, like Los Angeles, there's a lot of historic stuff there compared to like the East coast and stuff. We don't, our historic sites are a little bit, you know, few and far between, but you're right. Those houses are still maintained perfectly. Those are historical homes. Um, yeah, they're not lived in. Yeah. Yeah. They're never going to be torn down. They are not often lived in They're They're in muse. They're kind of like a museum kind of thing. Um, yeah. and it's just like, oh, that is just so fucking beautiful. Whenever you go back, it's, you know, those, I remember, have you ever seen Mildred Pierce, the mini series on HBO yeah, with Kate Winslet? Was that, it's was really that good. Lang? No, Kate Winslet. No, no, You're thinking no, of Grey Gardens. Um, but Mildred Pierce is based off of the novel and it's set in Glendale in uh, the early 1900s. And just those houses, like they're all, ugh, it's just nice to see that that historic part. It just reminds me of being in the car on the 210 <laughs> looking out the window. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of nice because I don't often miss it. And then I just want to say that the wrap up of the finale and the setup and the build for season two, I just, I thought was done so well. And, yeah. and, and very like, kind of like the way when we were like in Watchmen, that Watchmen kind of put all those pieces together, brought it all the way full circle. I really, really appreciated that. We'll talk about it in a little bit um, about the finale and how we felt about it. But I just really liked, I like to see season finales treated as season finales. You know, it's, it's not a place, this isn't Game of Thrones anymore. This is not a place for a cliffhanger and then the screen goes black, you know, whoa. Like, I'm sick of that. I, for certain genres, I'm really tired of seeing that. So to, to really like watch these characters go forward and then really just kind of go, Ooh, I can't wait to see what they do with that. You know, I thought was really great. And then also, um, I forgot a little piece of, uh, trivia. I read about the original Perry Mason, Della and Perry, uh, were usually romantically involved. So I'm really happy to see that instead of doing that, yeah, we're going to say Della is going to be in a lesbian relationship. Fucking love that. Love it. Great representation. Really feel like we're moving into the future. HBO, thank you. All right, Evan, what are some of your uh, last favorite scenes? Uh, kind of like rounded out. Loved, loved the part. Loved slash heartbroken. Yeah. Della found EB mm -hmm. after committing suicide. Mm -hmm. And this was one thing that I kind of came up with today after continuing my rewatch. And it was just like, the emotion that she shows in that scene, she cared for him so much. Mm -hmm. 
and the embrace that she gives Perry because Perry's the first person that she calls and then them like kind of resetting EB so it wouldn't look like he killed himself yeah it like he died in his sleep and that shows that they both cared so deeply about mm-hmm. him because we know particularly with EB and uh, Perry that it was a very father-son relationship and it kind of goes to show that with E.B. and Della, it was a father-daughter relationship. Yeah. They cared for one another. Mm-hmm. So, and then my last thing is just the death of Ennis. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. He deserved it. Mm-hmm. He deserved for his partner to double-cross him. Yeah. Pulled the wet money out of his dead body after he was fucking drowned in the, in the pond or mm-hmm. in the mountain. It was so good. That was amazing. But Favorite scenes, favorite characters, boom. Boom, we're done. We got that part. All right. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's move on. And we're going to just take a little break and then we'll come back. Okay, so we're just going to kind of wrap up here and talk about any gripes, uh, anything that we didn't appreciate or just kind of some loose thoughts, um, before we get out of here. And, uh, and, and also like, that's important things that we do not want to see repeated in season two, because it's a kind of obvious by the finale that we're edging some characters out, maybe moving forward without them, we think. So Evan, you take this one, start it off. All right. So, you know, thoughts for the next season, I don't have many gripes. I actually really nice. enjoyed the season as a whole. I thought it set up a great, great story. I didn't love the fact that John Lithgow had to be killed off. Neither did I. It made, made sense for the story. Yeah. But he was such a good character. And John Lithgow yeah. brings so much to everything that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, for season two... I'm hoping that we do not have to deal with Emily, mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind delving a little bit into Sister Alice as yeah. a person, yeah. and not as Sister Alice. Yeah. If we wanted to hit that, we could do it. Yeah. But what about you? Well, um, one of my only gripes, because like I said, I. I did not really have that. We didn't have that many problems with how it, the show was paced. Uh, again, it's very easy to watch a show knowing it's coming back. Um, and we got to, and we were, we were knowledgeable of that um, by halfway through the season, HBO announced that it will be doing season two. Um, so really the only thing that stood out to me is something that I just kept bumping up against and could not get on board with. Uh, and that was Emily Dodson's character. Um, geez, where do I start? Okay. So, I feel like, and this is me, just this is me. I will not lump you into this unless you want to be. Um, But personally, I really feel like it was very unclear how I was supposed to feel about her character in the beginning. Classic, like, oh, my God, this mom and her mother and she's a mother and her baby's dead and she found the dead baby. Oh, my God, this poor woman. And then, you know, Perry kind of does the same thing where he asks her, like, hey, are you okay? Has anybody asked you that? You know, like, or we just, or the tech is just kind of, you know, glazing over that. So I, I kind of appreciated that at first, but as you kind of get through it, you know, her life and her story and stuff around it kind of start to fall apart. 
And the problem with that is that she cannot argue or defend herself eloquently. And we are constantly asking where her morals lie. And I think as the character who, even if you, you know, we wanted to add the scandal in there that, you know, Emily isn't the perfect mother, you know, like there were basically just trying to confuse us making to think who did this. But I think in, in being so like, not knowing who killed her or who killed her son, she, her character was just hung out to dry in that way. Because again, I, I just don't know how I was supposed to feel about her. She goes from, I didn't do anything to you got to believe me. you got to fight for me to, Oh, don't worry. Jesus is coming to resurrect my baby. It'll all be fine. Like she gets very weird at the end. And I just didn't expect that from her character. I, and this character is just not flushed out properly. And unfortunately for us, she's a really integral part of the season. And she is a huge part of Perry's character because we eventually, and I'm glad that at least they did this with Perry, which is one of the funnier scenes was uh, Della says, can we have her, we can have her committed, committed. And Perry goes, how soon? And she's like, I was fucking kidding that we're not going to do that to her. But we are almost at that point where we're just done with Emily. And we're just like, I, I don't care. I care more about Sister Alice's reputation, whether, you know, baby Charlie's going to be resurrected or not, than I do that Emily gets her child back. So yeah. I'm sorry, but her character, no, not great. Not great for me. Didn't appreciate it. Don't want to see it again. And if that means that I don't get more Tatiana Maslany in my life, then I will just accept that and wait for her next role. <laughs> so I'll easily, I will easily love myself in with you. Thank like you. You, said, you weren't sure, but we don't need any more Emily. Her character was so like ambiguous. Yeah. It was almost like we were seeing different personalities from this one character and, you know, come the season finale when we see her with mother now holding the quote unquote, mm. uh, Resurrected Baby Charlie, Charlie, yeah. When we saw that, we had a good conversation about it, and it was—it's not deserved, yeah, by either of those characters to even be continued. Like you said, if we can get some more Tatiana Maslany, I'm down. Mm -hmm. I would love to see, like I said, Sister Alice as a person outside of the realm of a church or the idea of spirituality, mm -hmm. because she obviously removed herself from that. Mm -hmm. at the end, and she really connected with Perry within that last conversation that they had. Yeah. So that would be nice. I mean, the one thing that I'm, I am kind of anticipating for season two is a little more connection with uh, Perry's wife. Yeah. Because she was played by Gretchen Mole, who had a very notable role in uh, Boardwalk Empire. Do you remember uh, her character in Boardwalk Empire? Germany. Do you remember her character? She's in the first episode. She starts from the first episode. Oh, I mean, of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, in Boardwalk Empire. Yes. She starts from the and first then, episode. spoilers for people who haven't seen Boardwalk Empire, before her character, I won't say what season or whatever, but before her character moves on, um, she, there's a whole, her character is basically about the Oedipus complex. She's obsessed with her son, and they've had sex. And uh, no, I didn't know that. Nope. so there's some, there's nope. some pre uh, Game of Thrones incest for you. Yeah. 
No, but her character is amazing on Boardwalk Empire because she's at, she's kind of out of her mind. And then she's also very scary and um, vindictive. And then she's also like uh, a woman who will do anything to protect her family anything um but yeah but no i i would love to see more of her too because i i can't say i've seen her in anything since boardwalk empire and jillian darmody is just uh she's a really standout character especially as a female in that cast that's yeah see that's crazy because when i was watching it today i recognized her so i had to i had to look her up Mm. and i was just like okay i knew i've seen you somewhere i'm not absolutely obviously not as familiar with boardwalk empire as you are it's amazing because i didn't i don't think i got past season one so it's really good i was like okay but um kind of speaking of boardwalk empire quick little little blip um tim van patten mm-hmm. who directed five out of eight episodes of perry mason is actually very well known for boardwalk empire also a director on boardwalk empire yes um, he also kind of directed, he directed episodes of Sopranos, The Pacific, Deadwood, The Wire, Sex, Sex in the City. Amazing. Rome, and one of I want to know what Sex in the City he directed. <laughs> what? I wonder which episode of Sex in the City he directed. Because <laughs> I've seen all of them. I, I love that show. I can't even imagine. Depend, like, judging from this, other, the rest of the list. I have no idea um, what he would have directed on Sex in the City. They're all very violent. I've never seen any of them. No, it's never. <laughs> oh, that's, I mean, that just shows, yeah, that's really cool that he, he's obviously an HBO regular and an alumni who is, they're just like, yeah. hey, hey, come here. I know you're, you just directed Boardwalk Empire, but can you do this episode of Sex and the City and then do Sopranos? Yeah. And that's very, that's very cool that as we're moving into HBO Max and HBO is kind of reformatting their style and their content that's cool that we're taking people uh, who, you know, have a history with them and, and have a history of, of great shows. Those are all amazing yeah. shows that you listed. Yeah. All right. Huh? Well, until next there. season of Perry Mason, which we will get, we don't know when, but we will get it. Um, that was, this was great. And I'm really, really looking forward to having a multi-season show and I'm glad it's this one. I'm very, very interested to see where this is going. Absolutely. Hell yeah. Amazing. Well, before we leave you, um, we kind of wanted to talk about another show. It's a documentary, and it aired around the same time as Perry Mason. And at first, we we were kind of like, how do we get these, how do we talk about these two shows together? But they're both about crime, both about justice, they're both about dark uh, stuff that happens. <laughs> Those who are, you know, yeah, dark city kind of stuff. But I think... I mean, I have been really familiar with I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, as a book. And then it was uh, basically made into a documentary by Patton Oswalt and Michelle McNamara. Um, Evan, I know I've probably told you about this book before. Um, and yeah. you know that if you ever needed to know anything about cr- true crime, that I'm, I'm your girl. Um, yeah. But what got, you, what got you into this? I was, I was yeah. kind of surprised when <laughs> you jumped on board. I think it was actually you, because you told me about the podcast. You told me that it had been, it was a book. You mm-hmm. kind of gave me a little backstory on the creation of the book. Yeah. And I just kind of jumped into it, and then it, you know, it, it touches on things that we're still kind of going through today. Mm-hmm. That it's just like, wow. Yeah. This was, and it's so intense. 
story is told mm-hmm. through the perspective of so many different people, specifically for me and Michelle McNamara. Yeah. So the, let me give people a little a little info on this because we don't want to spoil this. We just want to praise it and we hope that people will watch it if they haven't seen it already. Um, but I'll be gone in the dark is a true crime novel, um, about, uh, the golden state killer, Joseph D'Angelo. This was written two. I want to say two years. I'm sorry if I'm messing this up. I want to say a couple it came out a couple years, um, before Joseph D'Angelo was actually caught or about a year before he was actually caught. I read the book. I became familiar with it um, based on, um, from listening to my favorite murder. Karen Kilgariff uh, was an acquaintance of Michelle and a friend of Patton Oswalt's. And uh, they, you know, as since they started their podcast in 2016, so this is right around the time that he was being caught and their podcast is one of the most successful true crime podcasts out there. I think it might actually be the number one um, besides like Serial and some of the other, uh, maybe less podcasts on the left. But My Favorite Murder really just got me into this. And at the peak of me, like listening to their, to their content, getting in there and binging their entire library, he was caught. And I just thought it yeah. was so fucking fascinating. And then I was like, here we go. Got to go back. And I actually have the Audible version of the book. And I will tell anybody who has not read it or listened to it, do not do it at night. It is, it is very, very scary, but it's, it's about Michelle McNamara writing this book, how this book came to be. And unfortunately, because of some complications with medication, she died before she could see um, the book really come to life. And before she could see Joseph D'Angelo sentenced and arrested. So, um, but yeah, so it's about the golden state killer and how he came uh, to be. I think my favorite part of it, I love Patton Oswalt and their daughter, I think was the most beautiful, was a really beautiful part. It was a really impactful portrait of a mother, a wife and a daughter of a woman who has had her own issues with her family and with um, a boss that had sexually assaulted her. So it was, I just, I really loved her. I think she's a badass woman. I think she's a great role model. And I think she single-handedly moved people away from, oh, serial killers are so cool. And what did they do? And what was their victim count? And what is the crazy shit they used to say? Taking it, taking the power away from them and putting it back into the victims and those cold cases. And that is where we're at currently in true crime podcasts, where the kind of the glamour of like, whoa, these was so crazy and this actually happened, that has all fallen away. And now we're more concerned with what do we do with all of this information? Let's get into cold cases and let's do what Michelle did. You know, let's bring justice to victims of sexual assault. And I just, I thought it was done so well. And it was, it was so beautiful. Parts of it, uh, warnings for people, if you are a little sensitive to, any sort of description of sexual assault, I would, you know, just trigger warnings all around, but it, as hard as it is to listen to, yeah, as hard as it is to listen to at certain parts and watch and see what these women went to and recounting what happened to them, it's it's so scary, but, you know, uh, most of his crimes were just rapes. And so to see those survivors go on and live their life and then, you know, become really, great spirited women after all of this and just to see them as survivors and not victims anymore. It was so, so well done. 
Yeah. Yeah. Anything? Absolutely. Yeah. Any other favorites? Anything else you think that is important about it coming out? I, I just think it was such a well done document. It's one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Long, long time. And for it to be kind of finished, uh, the word is a posthumously. Post, yeah, posthumously. Yeah. Like a, After like her death. Yeah. yeah. Like for them to kind of continue things. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. To see what it meant to her and that her husband wanted to do that for her and not just to see what it meant to her, but to, it meant to those victims and meant to the police and the detectives who had been working on these cases and really trying to get them, you know, move to the forefront after 40 years. It's just, it's really, really incredible. And you know, just this week, Joseph D'Angelo was sentenced to life sentence after life sentence after life sentence. And he's, you know, he's an old man now that he was caught as a, a, you know, an elderly man, but, and we know he will die in there, but just in case he's got all those life sentences on top of it to really just give back to the victims. And, and yeah, it, I just, I think it, it's kind of changed the way that I think at least females uh, have looked at true crime and female listeners and female true crime addicts and stuff where we she really is our like our angel (laughs) and everything she should be on a candle and we just light it and pray to her but yeah please watch uh i'll be gone in the dark on hbo and uh we loved it again we didn't try to spoil anything and we hope that you'll watch and thank you guys so much for listening um, you can follow us on Instagram at TV with friends is our handle. And if you want to email us or have any suggestions for things that we should discuss or shows, uh, you can also email us at TV with friends at gmail.com. Evan, thank you so much for doing this with me. Of course. Thank you for having me again. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you and we will talk to you soon.